The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182. The podcast is also sponsored by Fraser's Ridge Homecoming, presented by Outlander North Carolina. Now in its fifth year, Fraser's Ridge Homecoming is a unique three-day immersive event held in North Carolina's backcountry with more than 30 historically accurate workshops, as well as encampments, music, dancing, and more. Guests will be taken back in time to Claire and Jamie's home on the ridge to experience 18th century North Carolina history like never before, form lifelong friendships with other fans, and even have the chance to meet a special guest from the TV series. Come home to Fraser's Ridge October 12th through 14th at Leatherwood Mountains Resort in historic Ferguson, North Carolina. Begin your journey to the past by visiting frasersridgehomecoming.com. Outlander-inspired, history-focused. Imagine for a moment the journey from North Carolina to Virginia in the colonial era. Today, the state line isn't exactly a far-flung destination. But two and a half centuries ago, you would be walking that distance, or traveling on horseback, or under the cover of a carriage. The dirt roads connecting the two colonies were arduous, would take days if not weeks to navigate, and required a patience and a resilience we would struggle to endure with our present-day conveniences. Along the way were small towns still growing from new roots, and thriving cities defining the topics of culture and politics. But in those early years, America was still a largely undeveloped canvas of possibility. And on this particular journey, standing in your path is a million acres of natural wilderness, still untouched by progress that is as gorgeous as it is dangerous. Hello and welcome to Berguin Wright Presents. Outlander in the Cape Fear, a podcast series telling the stories of North Carolina's Cape Fear region through the history of one of its oldest historic sites. My name is Hunter Ingram. I'm the Assistant Museum Director for the Berguin Wright House and Gardens in Wilmington, and I'm your host for this podcast. This season on Berguin Wright Presents, we are back to exploring the real North Carolina history depicted in the global phenomenon that is Outlander. 
the historical fiction book series from author Diana Gabaldon and the Stars series that adapted it for television. The beloved story follows Claire, a World War II nurse who time travels back to 1743 Scotland, where she meets and eventually marries a devoted Highlander named Jamie Fraser. Together, the pair land in the American colonies in North Carolina on the eve of the Revolutionary War in the 1760s and 70s, and soon find themselves players in the founding of a country. For this episode, we're venturing into the wilderness to talk about a part of colonial history that is too often overlooked. The Great Dismal Swamp plays a fleeting but beloved part in the Outlander story. In the books and in the seventh season of the TV series, the character of William Ransom, the son of Jamie Fraser and a young redcoat in the early years of the Revolution, is sent on a top-secret mission to deliver correspondence to contacts in Virginia. Although their versions of the trip differ somewhat, on both the page and the screen, William becomes stranded and eventually injured in a patch of thick wilderness known today as the Great Dismal Swamp, which was rich in dense forest, vibrant wildlife, and countless dangers for those like William unprepared to face them. Traveling all alone and with a horse that leaves him behind with just his will to live, William quickly learns the swamp can be a stunning but unforgiving place to find yourself. While the story is intended to eventually introduce William to new characters like Denzel and Rachel Hunter and interact with familiar faces like young Ian Murray, the setting of these events is no coincidence. When crafting this story, author Diana Gabaldon knew the importance of the Great Dismal Swamp to the history and ecology of North Carolina and Virginia, then and now. In our modern age, the Great Dismal Swamp is a safer place, one preserved as a wildlife refuge with recreational and educational activities. But in the time of Outlander, what would the swamp have been like for those crossing its boundaries like William? What natural beauties and dangers awaited its visitors? And how did people like George Washington almost change its fate forever? We're going to answer those questions and more on this episode of Berguin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. Joining the show today to talk about the Great Dismal Swamp is Chris Lowey, the manager of the Great Dismal Swamp National Wildlife Refuge in Suffolk, Virginia. Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, before we jump in and really talk about the history and the preservation of the Great Dismal Swamp, I wanted to give our listeners, myself included, an opportunity for you to tell us a little bit about what the Great Dismal Swamp is. Can you describe kind of the conditions and the environment? Because I know that it has a really important part to play in the ecology of the eastern seaboard. Yeah, it really does. I mean, being here in the mid-Atlantic, you know, a highly populated area, I think what makes it so special is it, it is this large, um, over 100,000 acre forested wetland, has um, unique and rare habitat types for the state of Virginia and for the mid-Atlantic. 
And, you know, interesting, you know, with the large population that we have in the area, like this large forest, you can actually see it, you know, on satellite, you know, and it's just rare to have that and provide this habitat for wildlife and an outdoor recreation area for, for all the people that surround us. The environments that we deal with, um, you know, interestingly, like there's, we have maybe five primary habitat types here, but we're also what makes it unique is this peat soil. And you may hear about it as, you know, the Canada's on fire and a lot of this is this peat soil, right? And this peat soil burns and it produces that intense smoke that people are seeing up and further north from us. And so um, that's one of the challenges we deal with. Just the type of soil that we have here is unique across the world. It's not often that you work with something you can see from space. And so um, being able to see that large of a space, and I think that also shows why it, it has this resonance, not only for uh, locals and for people who appreciate the natural spaces in our world, but also for a popular culture like Outlander. I mean, a lot of people might be listening to this episode and wondering why a podcast called Outlander in the Cape Fear is talking to someone in Virginia. But this story moves up and down the East Coast in the colonial period, and the Great Dismal Swamp would have been something you would have encountered just by sheer size, it sounds like. And so how do we get the name Great Dismal Swamp? It seems a little, um, maybe not the most inviting, but it certainly is intriguing. And so how do we get that name? Yeah, so um, there's a couple anecdotes um, from history. And, and you know, going back to what you were saying about the significance of this in North Carolina, I mean, the swamp used to be a million acres, you know, so it's only one-tenth of the size that it was historically. And so when you look at, yes, the ecological significance, but also this historical significance, when you look at um, Roanoke Island and Williamsburg, you know, we're right, the swamp was right in the middle as people, you know, were populating, you know, or inhabiting this area, the European settlement and colonial period. So um, the name, though, um, two things. So we have information that in the South, swamps, another name for swamps was dismal. So it would be the great swamp swamp, you know. <laughs> so that was um, one word. The other thing is, um, and probably more relevant, is in 1728, when William Byrd and his crew were establishing the Virginia-North Carolina line. They started at the Atlantic Ocean and claimed that they hit a massive wall of vegetation that was impenetrable, not fit for man or animal to be in there. And uh, the story is he did not actually go through the swamp. He said, I will meet you on the other side. <laughs> Might so, have been a smart man at the time. Yeah, yeah. So that was, uh, uh, he said it was dismal. Wow. Well, why is it so much smaller now? Why is it a tenth of its size today than it was around that time? Um, just from like settlement, most of the land around, well, to the south in North Carolina is primarily agricultural land, you know, so it, um, forests were cut, ditches were dug to drain, you know, the swamp to be able to farm the land. And, um, and then to the north, of course, we have Hampton Roads, you know, Virginia with one and a half million people in a highly developed land. So it's just natural progression of time, progress of development, things like that, that have really constricted its size, which I imagine makes what you do and where you work, which is a wildlife refuge, even more important because it's protecting what is left and what's really using what's left as its home. Exactly. Yeah, we, um, 
we like to say that, you know, we are protecting, you know, the remnants of what was, you know, the larger Disney swamp. Now, again, there's such history that kind of runs right through this, or in the case of Mr. Bird goes around it, but it is a, it's a really fascinating part of the colonial period because you have some interesting names that come through it. We're going to talk about how George Washington is related to it, but before we get there, one of the reasons I wanted to do this was I don't know much about the Great Dismal Swamp. And so in some cursory research that I've done, it looks like that there have been some archaeological digs that show there were indigenous people who were using the Great Dismal Swamp and the area around it as their home. And so what kind of things have you learned over the decades of, of research and archaeological digs that can speak to the original inhabitants of this area? Most of what we understand and believe is that the uh, various um, Indian tribes still lived on the periphery of the swamp. Again, uh, maybe just more hospitable environment to live outside the swamp, but clearly utilize the swamp for livelihood, you know, for hunting, plants, you know, the berries, the various, you know, edible plants and berries are out. Um, there may have been some, you know, actual um, settlements in the swamp, but again, it's more of the periphery and, and definitely utilize it. We, um, the Nansman Indian tribe, is uh, still located here in Suffolk. It's their historical lands. The eastern band of the Cherokee, the Yeopin, I believe it's pronounced, and Lumpy tribes, you know, some of the, the smaller tribes. And so, um, yeah, they all lived off the land here in the swamp, lived off the swamp. Which makes sense, considering its size. I mean, it would probably have been unavoidable at the time to, you know, intersect your life with it. In terms of the refuge, do you all have, you know, programs and, and things that speak to that part of the history? I imagine there's some type of acknowledgement of, of that when people come through the, the refuge. Yeah, we do a lot of presentations, you know, for the public. Um, and to give a general overview of the refuge, we, we kind of couch it as this is a refuge for wildlife, a refuge for people. Always has been, always will be. And so we talk about those various things to talk about the ecological and the historical significance. And so we'll start with um, the indigenous folks and then with the research that's been done, kind of these eras of time of, you know, people utilizing the swamp. Now, Outlander crosses paths with the Great Dismal Swamp in the seventh book and its current seventh season. Again, they film it in Scotland. So in the same way that you're not seeing the real Wilmington in the Cape Fear on the actual TV show, you are not seeing the real Great Dismal Swamp, but it is seen through the life of a character named William Ransom, as I mentioned in our intro, who gets stranded in the swamp and has to be rescued. Now, before that all happens in the 1770s, the real history of the swamp really intersects with a few recognizable names that I kind of teased, including George Washington. So what is George Washington's relation to the Great Dismal Swamp? I, if I understand it correctly, he comes in well before the American Revolution. Yeah, so he um, he showed up in the 1700s, you know, around that 1770, you know, time frame. But and um, you know, he saw the swamp as a little different than William Byrd. He saw it as a glorious paradise, you know, but also a resource. And this peat soil, dark, assuming it was fertile, was great farmland. And uh, he and other entrepreneurs started the um, Dismal Swamp Land Company. 
and cleared some of the forest, dug a ditch to get you know water out of the swamp to then farm the land. And uh, that farming, the soil is not very fertile without you know current technology that we have now. And uh, but the the timber industry worked out well, and that that Dismal Swamp Land Company owned and had a good portion of this land, almost 50,000 acres, up until 1909. So they weren't able to do anything with it, though. They, they learned the, the challenges of trying to, uh, trying to change its use, I guess, from being a natural place to being a developed place. Yeah, correct. But um, their main purpose was you know, the timber value, the um, abundant Atlantic white cedar and bald cypress, you know, hardy tree species that are used to build ships and boats and roofs and houses and all that stuff. So very much like the longleaf pine industry that was here in North Carolina in the Cape Fear that was so so important to developing North Carolina as a colony. Just like in Virginia, this was such a, a huge part of really getting the colonies off the ground. On the back of, of slave labor, I mean a lot of these companies, including this one from what I understand, was using slave labor to do this, but this is so essentially part of the American story, having to really find these places that were hugely natural, hugely rich in, in potential, and then trying to take what you can from them. Now, in the actual Outlander story, William Ransom actually interacts with Lake Drummond, I believe that's how you say it, and that is pretty central to his time in the Great Dismal Swamp. What is Lake Drummond, and why was it so special in this area? I mean, so Lake Drummond, you know, it's a, one of only two natural lakes in the state of Virginia. And um, I think we call it the heart of the swamp. I mean, it, it's in the center of the swamp. It's beautiful. And the hydrology of the swamp is so essential to this ecosystem. And, and it all kind of feeds in and off of Lake Drummond. My understanding, historically, there were um, a lot of uh, camps and even hotels, you know, in the early days. The origin, you know, how was the lake formed is interesting. There's three different theories on how the lake was formed. Uh, one being a peat fire, you know, that burned down to the water table and, you know, now created this bowl in the middle of the swamp. There's uh, a theory of a, a meteor uh, that, you know, a meteor formed uh, part of the Chesapeake Bay, the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, and that, you know, that because it's so round, that the lake is, you know, almost a perfect circle. And so uh, that's another theory. And then the indigenous theory and lore is that it is the great firebird's nest that protected wildlife in the swamp. And so um, it's just um, it's an amazing place. I mean, yes, it's a lake. There's lots of lakes. But when you come out to the Dismal Swamp, um, you feel like you're in the middle of nowhere in this beautiful lake, and it changes every day. The scenery changes every day based on the cloud cover, the wave height. It's just, uh, it is beautiful. Even in the moments that we've seen this in the Outlander story, and whether it's TV or a book, there's there's always that moment where, whether they're standing beside the real one or not, in the show, he just kind of takes in the moment. And I think that that was an acknowledgement of this kind of peacefulness, this this beauty that's in the middle of something that's called the Great Dismal Swamp, but is so naturally unmistakable in a way. And again, I've never been there myself. I'm planning a trip now because obviously I want to see this beauty, but it's it's even beautiful from pictures. And so I can't imagine what it's like to be standing on the shores there. 
Uh, I imagine it makes your job every day quite exciting. One of my favorite places to visit. Very calming. <laughs> well, as we move past the American Revolution and, and into the, the next eras of American history, what's happening in the Great Dismal Swamp? I know that there is some effort with communities and things. There's some islands there. How is the Great Dismal Swamp being used as we really start to forge ahead as a new country? Well, like these islands that you mentioned, you know, they, they served as, as refuge for freedom seekers. The Dismal Swamp is part of the Underground Railroad Network of Freedom. And as people moved north through the swamp seeking freedom, but um, these islands and these communities, they're called maroon communities that were established on these islands, these higher grounds. And when I say higher ground, it's maybe only six or eight inches above, you know, the, the normal uh, swamp elevation where it's wetter. But um, the archaeological research that we have believes that, you know, generations of families lived in the swamp seeking refuge. And there was interaction between the interior, what we call the interior communities on these islands and the slave labor that was working to dig these canals, like the great, you know, the Dismal Swamp Canal. And that research has kind of shown, like, there's artifacts that have been found in, in the refuge that you won't find in the re in a swamp. You know, they were brought from outside. Played a significant part in colonization um, of this area. It's harsh, I imagine. It's There's probably places within the, the Great Dismal Swamp that are pretty unforgiving. The average person probably wouldn't want to venture out just for a casual walk. They need to be prepared. But for these people, they're using it as, as shelter. They're using it as kind of a shield from this other world that they have fled. And um, it's interesting to see its indigenous roots. It's interesting to see how it was attempted to be developed and how it really becomes this refuge from darker parts of our history, I guess you could say. It's, uh, it's one of those things that the natural world provides us, even when we don't always provide it back in kind. Absolutely. Now, how did the Great Dismal Swamp, or what is left of it, become the national wildlife refuge that you work for today? Um, how does it become a protected space now when, you know, 200 years ago, there were attempts to buy it and develop it? Yeah, so um, after the Dismal Swamp Land Company, as I said, 1909, they then turned the land over to Camp Manufacturing, which was another timber company. That company then changed to Union Camp, and they owned it up until, you know, 1973. And actually, interestingly enough, Union Camp is now International Paper, which is in Franklin, Virginia, just half an hour west of here. There's a paper plant there in Franklin that they were Union Camp. So, um, again, it's still active today as far as that uh, timber industry. Well, anyway, so Union Camp was was done utilizing their 49,000 acres. And lo the local community here, different Nonprofit organizations, conservation groups were strongly advocating the protection of this property. And so Union Camp donated the 49,000 acres, basically the northern half of what is currently the refuge, donated that to the Nature Conservancy to then donate to the federal government to establish the refuge. And so in 1974, the refuge was established for the purpose of protecting and preserving the unique and outstanding ecosystem. That is our purpose of being here. 
Now it's expanded though, because you were talking about a hundred thousand acres. That was forty nine thousand. So have there been efforts to bring in other parts, obviously more of the southern parts closer to that Virginia, North Carolina border to expand the refuge? Yeah, and it happened quite quickly, honestly. The more southern portion of the of the refuge. Yeah, we just acquired more timber country land from timber companies that maybe saw the benefits of selling the land or donating more of the land. And so currently, the National Wildlife Refuge is 113,000 acres. And then directly adjacent to that is the North Carolina Dismal Swamp State Park, which is another 14,000 acres. We're about 127,000 in total protected land space for, for wildlife and people. Now, when I reached out about talking to someone with the, with the refuge and, and I was told about you, uh, the person who I spoke to said that you had been there for, for quite a long time, uh, I think of 17 years. And so what's it been like for you on a daily basis to interact with this area? You know, again, we're seeing kind of a, a distilled version of this through Outlander, through the book and the TV show. But I mean, what kind of things are you wading through each day to protect this refuge? Yeah, the 17 years I've been here, I mean, I it's it's been quite a journey and every. The thing about the swamp is you never know what you're going to run into. Um, we have a plan. We have habitat management plans and conservation plans. I guess this kind of leads me to the challenges, right? And this organic soil, the threat of wildfire. Just recently here here today, I mean, prior to the last couple of weeks, we were in drought conditions and we were you know, planning for that lightning strike that's going to come. And who knows? Um, when I first started here, we had the largest wildfire in refuge and Virginia history at 6,000 acres. It was a 6,000 acre fire. It burned for four months. So um, since then, we have been working hard and fortunate to be able to restore the hydrology of the swamp. A lot of ditches, like I said, to drain the swamp. We're trying to restore this ecosystem, make it a wetland again. So that is what our primary focus is on. But, you know, the, the challenges of species management. We've reintroduced an endangered woodpecker and, and trying to get that population reestablished on the refuge. Um, dealing with visitors. We have five public access points where visitors can come and hike and bike and observe wildlife. And, and so, um, you know, day to day, we're just, we're constantly trying to understand the system, still understand how this system functions and, and create habitat, you know, the best for the wildlife and create quality visitor, visitor services and amenities for folks that come in. So a part of protecting the wildlife refuge today is still dealing with some of the things from the colonial period where they're starting to dig those canals. And so you're still battling against some of that to protect it even 200 years later. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that use in the past, you know, changed the habitat conditions here. It's a, it's a drier system. You know, drier system with drier species, it's mostly um, a maple gum forest, and that's not what was here before. And we're never going to take it back, right? We're never going to restore the swamp. And so what we're looking to do, again, thinking about day-to-day -day management, is how can we preserve this going into the future in the face of climate change, in the face of constant wanting to change the landscape, you know, and, and progress of um, development and those kind of things is 
we're we're looking to the future. We're not going to take it back. We're looking to the future and how we can preserve it for wildlife and people going into the future. Make it resilient, more resilient. Yeah, because the the mindset that George Washington and his fellow developers had has not changed. There's still people trying to develop places like this 250 years later. And so it's a constant battle, I imagine, to remind people the reason why it's preserved, remind people why it shouldn't be developed and, and continue to serve what's in it. What kind of um, what kind of wildlife are we seeing? I imagine there's there's a plethora, but for people who may have never been, what kind of wildlife is really thriving in the swamp today? So the mammals we have black bear is a you know a keystone species here in the swamp, and that's a, a prize sighting. But people do see them. You know we we do allow we have 60 miles of hiking, biking, auto tour routes where people can go, and so. Black bears, white-tailed deer, a bobcat is a unique sighting because, you know, it's a cat and they're, you know, real elusive. And so if you can catch a sighting of that. And then because we're a swamp, a lot of reptiles and amphibians, you know, the turtles and, and snakes that are just out on the roads and on the logs in the ditches. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of folks that enjoy the, you know, that, that fauna as well. So that's the primary. Wild turkeys we have as well. Folks can see those. And the birds. I mean, we have 200 species of migratory birds that utilize this as Passover site and also a nesting um, site. So we get a lot of birders that come from all over the world, really, to uh, see some rare birds that are more common here. The bird watching must be amazing. Yeah. Well, again, as I said in the beginning, that this is not the most well-known part of the Outlander story. Again, the Great Dismal Swamp has been in plenty of a popular culture beyond Outlander. But I think the reason that it's so important in this the story that we're telling with, with how Outlander's using North Carolina history and Virginia history, because again, they're moving north in this story and they're encountering something that, again, would have been unavoidable if you're going straight through it. Now, <laughs> in the story, they're talking about how it's good for hunting. We don't do that today, I imagine, in the Great Dismal Swamp. We do. Oh, do you do? Offer, okay. Yep, we do offer hunting opportunities. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, that was funny because I was going to ask that, that in the show, they speak specifically about how it's good hunting ground. And I wondered if that was still something that is part of the offerings, the accessibility at the Great Dismal Swamp today. Yep, absolutely. How do you, how do you kind of manage that, though, between being a wildlife refuge and a place where people can come to hunt? So, you know, it, it, it goes back to the values of the Fish and Wildlife Service, which is the branch of the federal government that we work for. And I mean, hunters, hunters were the first conservationists. Um, refuges were established to protect species due to overharvest, mainly waterfowl um, and, other, and other migratory birds. And so we look at the hunting community as partners um, in conservation with us. And so um, people were hunting, again, the indigenous tribes long before there was federal government involvement in national wildlife refuges. And so um, it's a traditional use of the land. So for those who read Outlander and watch Outlander, all those comments from William Ransom and young Ian talking about hunting, it's still something that is a, a part of the wildlife refuge today. Yep, Absolutely. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time. Again, I didn't know much about the Great Dismal Swamp. And so I was really curious because it is something that has a foot in both of our states, in North Carolina, in Virginia. 
And it's really interesting to hear about how it's thriving today, how it's being preserved today. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your work to preserve the refuge. And hopefully this conversation will send a lot of Outlander fans your way. Thank you. Yeah, it was a great conversation. And we always say, it's not dismal. (laughs) I love it. I love it. All right, Chris, have a great day. Thank you for your time. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Berguin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back every two weeks this summer with new episodes as the new season of Outlander airs on Stars. Until our next episode, be sure to subscribe to this podcast by searching Berguin Wright Presents on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please rate and review us which can help more people find the podcast. You can also follow the Berguin Wright House and Gardens on all social media platforms, including Facebook and Instagram, for the latest on what we're doing at the site. As a nonprofit, this podcast and all the exciting projects done at the Berguin Wright House are made possible by donations and community support. Please consider making a donation or joining our membership program with exclusive perks and tours. All the money raised goes towards the furthered education and preservation of Wilmington's oldest historic site. For more information, visit our website in each episode's description or at bergwinwrighthouse.com. Thank you so much for your support. This podcast is written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. We would like to take a moment to thank Durable Restoration Company, and Fraser's Ridge Homecoming for sponsoring the podcast this season. And we'd also like to thank Rachel Ross for our cover art design and the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the state of North Carolina for their continued support. See you next time on Bergwin Wright Presents Outlander in the Cape Fear. The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182. The podcast is also sponsored by Fraser's Ridge Homecoming, presented by Outlander North Carolina. Now in its fifth year, Fraser's Ridge Homecoming is a unique three-day immersive event held in North Carolina's backcountry with more than 30 historically accurate workshops, as well as encampments, music, dancing, and more. Guests will be taken back in time to Claire and Jamie's home on the ridge to experience 18th century North Carolina history like never before, form lifelong friendships with other fans, and even have the chance to meet a special guest from the TV series. Come home to Fraser's Ridge October 12th through 14th at Leatherwood Mountains Resort in historic Ferguson, North Carolina. Begin your journey to the past 
by visiting Fraser's Ridge Homecoming.com. Outlander inspired, history focused.